This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Two Coloradans who see climate change very differently join me today. One is a ranking Republican in the state Senate, Kevin Lundberg of Berthoud. After hearing our stories on climate and Colorado's national parks, he posted to Facebook that climate, quote, is not changing any more than it always has been changing through the centuries. But what people think about those changes has been undergoing a radical transformation, which is not based on real world facts. Lundberg wields influence over how the state responds to climate change, if at all. And for that reason, we want to hear his thinking. We have also asked Scott Denning to join us, professor at CSU in the Department of Atmospheric Science. His Twitter feed is dedicated to the three S's of climate change. Simple, serious, solvable. And welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you very much. In June, 31 U.S. scientific organizations sent members of Congress a letter, quote, reminding you of the consensus scientific view of climate change. Observations throughout the world make it clear that climate change is occurring, and rigorous scientific research concludes that the greenhouse gases emitted by human activities are the primary driver. The letter adds this conclusion is based on multiple independent lines of evidence and the vast body of peer-reviewed science. Senator Lundberg, why doesn't that qualify as real-world facts to you? Well, Brian, let me let me start with what uh, you actually asked your listeners, and I, being one of your listeners, did respond to, and uh, that is, uh, what was our experience in observing climate change issues here in Colorado? And I gave two specific, uh, rather objective points, one of which is uh, I've been a gardener for all of my life, and that's uh, more than 60 years now, and the frost-free date back when I was a kid was May 15th. Guess what? It's the same today. I haven't seen any change there. Uh, I was also very much involved in uh, custom harvesting, harvesting of the winter wheat crops here in Colorado uh, 50 years ago. And they were harvested here up in the uh, uh, Front Range, northern Colorado area, about the um, latter part of July 50 years ago. Today, it's the same. Um, that's what actually started my interaction with your um, with, with your uh, um, uh, network here on this. And what I see is not as much change in the, um, uh, it, in the environment around us as, uh, and, you know, I could build this a, a lot of other directions as well, but, but that was the criteria with which I came on the air here, was to explain my perspective there. Um, I'm and you use frankly, that, yeah, you use that yeah. uh, example of what you were seeing in your own backyard mm-hmm. as, as something of a jumping off point in your comments to us to say uh, more largely that you, you don't think real world facts support the notion of... Well, I've ant- been following this for the last 20 years very carefully as a, uh, somebody involved in the public policy arena. And what I have seen is a whole lot of rhetoric on both sides of the issue. We have climate alarmists and we have climate uh, skeptics. And uh, I certainly fall in that uh, uh, latter category because I don't see the overwhelming evidence that, uh, that is driving public policy. And that's my concern is public policy today o- across the world, we see literally tw- trillions of dollars of resources being devoted to 
uh, controlling our carbon output. And this is at great expense to everything else that could be done for the betterment of mankind. But instead, we're running after this, this, this one theory that has yet to be fully understood nor uh, um, uh, uh, really solutions figured out. I, I, I know the, uh, the esteemed professor beside me here has, has been digging the other direction, but I can tell you as a public policy guy, I see a lot more political science than hard science being thrown into this argument. Professor Denning, to go back to the two S words, two of the three in your Twitter feed, that climate change is serious and simple, what makes you say that? Well, let's uh, let's remember what uh, how climate works, and I think it's not um, all that uh, complicated. We we learn about this stuff in grade school. We teach our kids about this that um, f- fundamentally heat in minus heat out equals change of heat. Uh, you know, you put more heat in than something, then you take out, it warms up. Uh, you take more heat out than you put in, and it cools off. And of course, this is the the basic physics that controls why day is warmer than night. It's why summer is warmer than winter, and it's why Denver is warmer than Estes Park on the average. And um, we've known for 150 years that CO2, as a just gas in the atmosphere, absorbs heat. Uh, it absorbs very well uh, the particular wavelengths of heat that's emitted by the Earth. And uh, this is a measurement made in laboratories, of course, 150 years, the measurements have gotten a lot better um, and been made all over the world by instruments and different labs. And we all get exactly the same answer. There's no no doubt at all that uh, the heat comes in from the sun and then it has to get radiated back out to space. And if you absorb some of that heat on the way out with the extra CO2 molecules, that uh, that's going to warm things up for the same reason that summer is warmer than winter. Um, with regard to Sirius, uh, I, I very much respect Senator Lundberg and um, thank him for paying attention to things like frost-free dates and uh, the time of the wheat harvest. Um, more of our citizens should, should pay attention in the way that, that he has, and, and I think we, uh, we appreciate that. Um, but the, the data from hundreds of different stations around the state show that, in fact, it has been warming up, um, just as uh, we, we would predict from heat in minus heat out. It's warmed about two degrees Fahrenheit in the last 30 years here in Colorado. Um, the snow is melting a couple of weeks earlier than it used to. Uh, but but really, the serious thing is the future. And, and we are concerned. We, we've only burned about 10% of all the fossil fuel that we have. Uh, and plan A is to burn the other 90%, so 10 times as much as we have today. Um, and we think that that will make the world a whole lot warmer and evaporate a lot of water and change things in Colorado in a way that uh, many of us would prefer that that it didn't change. And, Senator, in our own reporting, we're seeing instances of climate change affecting national parks in the state, for instance, and scientists on the ground there making those observations. Uh, And so I wonder if if there is any uh, amount of science or anything you could hear from the scientific community that could sway your position on climate change. Well, first you'd have to define my position on climate change because I I thoroughly accept the fact that we are seeing some global warming and we have been seeing it uh, since the Little Ice Age uh, uh, several hundred years ago. And since 1850 or so, there's been a more consistent pattern of increase. But what I don't see is this, uh, th- this perspective that says, and it's just exploding. And we've been hearing that for the last mm, about 20 years or so. 
Um, well, go back 20 years ago and look at the predictions that were made then and then put us here today. And what you'll see is a whole lot less than what was predicted. And the concern I have as a public policymaker is that we are rushing forward in a reckless fashion to squander all of our abilities and resources on on this uh, uh, this this concern that needs to be at minimum much better understood rather than we you know than than uh, just throwing all caution to the wind in a reckless fashion, not uh, uh, looking at at other options for developing the betterment of mankind. Um, climate change occurs much more from the natural progression of things rather than the human influences that, uh, that we're being told. And, and I am convinced of that, having read a great deal of information on many levels. And I, I applaud what, what uh, uh, Professor Denning is doing in digging into all the particular details, but I would caution any scientist who wants to then step into more of a political advocacy role um, that that that's dangerous ground, and we are uh, jeopardizing the future of our um, uh, of you know those who are to come be, beyond us by focusing on this what I would consider so far uh, a false premise that everything must be devoted towards controlling our carbon footprint. Uh, that's that's the point of disagreement. Yes, uh, climate change occurs. It always occurs, and we're seeing a, an increase in temperatures that we've seen for you know many many decades. But but I do not see that this this ramping up that that is uh, supposedly occurring because of anthropogenic carbon dioxide. Something you said there, Senator, was that uh, that, that you don't believe this to be well understood. Uh, what can you say about that, <laughs> Professor Denning? What what do we solidly know about anthropogenic contributions to climate change, and what are there still questions about? I mean, one thing we know is that that the oil industry has certainly tried to raise doubts around climate change. Do, is there a lot of uh, Brian? Brian, let me stop you there for a second. No, no, no. Because me, I'd like the professor that, to. That's to one weigh of in. the f- well, for, but, professor. But could you let uh, me get back to that then? Because I'll, that's I'll let, a, I will. A very absolutely. important point, for Professor Denning. So, so uh, you, you've asked me what what do we know and what do we not know so well, and um, we, we know without a shadow of a doubt that CO two absorbs heat, as I've said, in exactly the wavelengths of of radiation that are emitted by the Earth. We know how much it absorbs. It's a quantitative thing. We can measure uh, the effect of the extra CO two um, in the laboratory. We also can do it outdoors. You know, measure it uh, coming down from the sky. Uh, we measure it from satellites in space. We can we can tell um, sort of watt by watt how, how much heat is being absorbed by the extra CO2 in the air. We know that the CO2 isn't chemically reactive like the brown cloud in Denver. It's not going to disappear on Saturday when people don't drive. It's actually accumulating um, progressively in the atmosphere, and it will continue to do that as long as we uh, burn the fuel. And we know that if we um, burn it all, then we're going to add as much extra uh, heat radiation to the earth over the next couple of centuries as was added at the end of the last ice age, uh, which was enough then to melt all that ice and raise the sea level hundreds of feet. We, we mustn't do that. Um, on the other hand, I have to certainly be humble as, the, as scientists. We, there's lots of stuff we don't know. We don't know uh, to what degree the uh, the ice will uh, ice in, in like Antarctica and Greenland will um, melt all of a sudden, how quickly that can happen. Uh, we don't know 
to uh, how much different uh, processes in the atmosphere might amplify this um, warming. So there's questions about the degree and the the rate of the warming. Um, And and certainly I want to acknowledge something that Senator Lundberg said that um, I'm not here to to try to advocate for public policy. I'm, I'm here to just um, explain the science as we understand it, the measurements. Um, as I said, we expect it to warm up a lot if we burn all the fuel uh, for precisely the same reasons that we expect day to be warmer than night or summer to be warmer than winter. And Senator, uh, to this idea of, of scientists' sort of um, agenda, if they have one, in the letter that the 31 U.S. scientific organizations sent to members of Congress, it was not advocating for a particular piece of policy, but that Congress address the issue. Uh, and, and so what, what do you think is motivating scientists then that, that you say are, are pushing a political agenda? You know, I very much regret that uh, a former professor of CSU uh, is no longer with us, William Gray. He had some very interesting uh, uh, observations on how scientists are often driven by the grants that they can obtain. And if you take more of a skeptical view towards global warming, uh, you won't find as many grants available. So that can be one thing that can color it. Here's another thing. I just want to say, you're saying that that consensus... Uh, scientists on climate change are holding that position because they want to hold on to money? No, I'm saying that very often a scientist who needs to survive needs a grant. And the uh, and again, uh, former uh, professor emeritus uh, William Gray here from CSU made a very strong case for that. Um, I even have some uh, video on that uh, that unfortunately he passed away earlier this year. But uh, yes, I am saying that money does drive some of this in in subtle ways. Also, attitudes drive it. Brian, you yourself said, well, the oil companies are trying to convince us otherwise. Um, there are a lot of very uh, diligent people who have nothing to do nor any funding from oil companies who are convinced that uh, that we are going way overboard on this. Uh, and I don't see as much serious... Uh, uh, um, wrestling with that other side. It, it's it's like everybody wants to rush forward and say, well, let's just call it a, a, a done deal and move on from there. As a public policy guy, I'm saying, I don't think we can afford to do that because of the phenomenal expense it is to all the rest. You know, there are people in this world, billions of people who live on the edge of existence and they need basic things like refrigeration and and basic medical needs. Um, th- those are being set aside in deference to this uh, agenda of getting rid of all carbon dioxide uh, uh, effects. Um, so you've, you've I, I'm, talked about... I'm sorry, it's too much politics and not enough science. You've talked a, a lot about the expense of addressing climate change. Governor Hickenlooper is considering an executive order to cut carbon emissions from power plants. He says if that's possible while keeping the cost of electricity steady, it would be government malpractice not to pursue that avenue. In a Facebook post last week, Senator, you said the governor's action, quote, is perilously close to making up the law. In an interview with Colorado Matters, the governor responded to that criticism. 
We're not talking about circumventing any of the traditional processes. So you think that legislation might grow out of this? Oh, I think absolutely. There would be parts of it that would be, I would assume, to get to these goals, it would be impossible without legislation. So if that's their major concern, they should be able to sleep comfortably tonight. I want to push back on this idea that that's addressing climate change has to be expensive and at the expense of other things. Let me try to do this very briefly. Sure. First off, with, with respect to the governor's executive order, uh, I've read that very carefully, and he doesn't talk about doing it within any cost parameters. He, he directs the power, um, uh, the electric utilities, to, uh, uh, to reduce their, their carbon emissions by 25% by 2025, I believe it is, and 35% by 2030. Now... Um, here in Fort Collins, the electricity is uh, provided by Platte River Power Authority. They told me most directly, and I went back and confirmed it, so I was entirely accurate, that the the uh, um, the plans that are in place from the Obama administration right now to reduce the carbon output of the power utilities will require a 30% increase in electric rates for the cities of Fort Collins, Loveland, Longmont, and Estes Park. Uh, that's not for free. And that's just getting started. That's not calling for a 30% reduction by 2030. I want to wrap up, uh, Professor, with you. You attended last week the Heartland Institute's International Conference on Climate Change. It was the third time you've made a presentation there, and the Heartland Institute is considered something of a home for climate change doubters. Um, in an interview, you said that the attendees at the conference aren't evil people, but possibly misled. Professor, do you ever change minds at a conference like that? Well, I don't know if uh, if I change the minds of, of uh, organizers, but I love to uh, visit with people of different uh, who have different ideas about this, and to uh, and to have respectful conversations back and forth. Um, t- taking off my my science hat for a minute and just speaking as a, as a person, um, I, I think about um, what our ancestors did here in the United States. Uh, my grandparents' generation ripped up all the streets and laid sewer pipes and uh, ran hot and cold running water up and down buildings and put in toilets and showers and really glad they did that. And uh, my parents' generations built, uh, built interstate highway systems at phenomenal expense. I'm glad they did that. My own generation um, built the internet, uh, replaced landlines with, with mobile phones. And, uh, each of these things was phenomenally expensive, certainly on the scale of the kind of things that, uh, that are being contemplated to reduce carbon emissions, but they were worth it. And they weren't things that made us go broke. Um, they're things that make life better for, for all of us. And I think, uh, now it's, now it's the time for the next generation to, uh, to pick up and, um, do like our ancestors have done and, um, build infrastructure that makes the world a better place that we can all uh, live in and and uh, and do just fine. And and very briefly, Professor, um, for you or any of your colleagues in atmospheric science, is is money or government grants driving your perception of of the issue? No, um, I think I I knew Bill Gray very well, respected him. Um, I also mourn his passing. Um, but you know, when we measure heat being absorbed by CO2, uh, and, and everybody in the world can do this and has done it for 150 years, that's not being driven by grants. 
You heard there Scott Denning, professor in the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University, and Kevin Lundberg from Berthoud. He's assistant majority leader in the state Senate. And as Senator Lundberg can attest, we are asking for your help to inform our climate coverage. What would you like our reporters to focus on? Email environment at CPR.org. Just ahead, we check back in with two Coloradans running for office for the first time, what they're learning about the political process. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Labor Day weekend's now behind us, and if you spent your summer knocking on doors and walking in parades, you might have been running for office. This election season, we are following two first-time candidates. We first met Kevin Sippel and Electra Johnson in early June, and time to check back in. Sippel is a Republican running for Boulder County Commissioner, and Electra Johnson is a Democrat running for commissioner in El Paso County. And in fairness to their opponents, we're largely steering clear of issues and focusing really on what it means to run for office and to do so for the first time. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So, Electra, you're an architect by trade. Earlier this year, you went to your local caucus, and the next thing you knew, you were running for county commissioner. Uh, you did indeed spend a lot of time knocking on the doors of your neighbors this summer. Who did you meet? What have you learned from that experience? Well, I've been knocking. We've had uh, huge groups of volunteers, which has been phenomenal, and knocked on thousands of doors in a wide variety of areas. My district is, it takes about an hour to drive from north to south. It's huge. It's 87,000 voters. And I've met veterans who are dealing with real problems of um, being represented and, and having advocates. I've met incredible neighbors. I've been, um, I've been, uh, uh, assaulted by young children <laughs> in a really good way. There's a there's a small girl, a, a young girl in um, my, one of my precincts, 839, who um, I met at a fire station down there. They're dealing with some, putting a quarry in the middle of a, 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 an area. And I saw her later on at her grandparents' house. And the first thing that she did was she just ran up and hugged me, which was really nice. You come to the door as a Democrat in a very heavily Republican county. Absolutely. And what, what uh, is, how quickly do you say, I'm a Democrat? <laughs> I don't know that I say that at all. I mean, I think that this is really about issues, not parties within within El Paso County. We need good representation, citizen representation across the board. And uh, that's sort of what I stand for. Interesting. So you might have an entire conversation at the door without saying what your party affiliation is. Is that because you're a Democrat that you, you don't lead with that? I don't think it's the most important piece, quite honestly. I think good representation is much more important. I mean, it's not that I'm, 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 I'm proud to be a Democrat. I'm proud uh, of, um, you know, I'm proud of many of the values, but I think that listening and civil discourse is maybe one of the most important pieces, and we're really lacking that culturally right now. So there's old-fashioned shoe leather, but this is 2016, and I do understand that you use some technology uh, as you go from door to door. Will you tell me about this? I think it's a smartphone app that you use. Yeah, so it's called Van. Well, the the it's a voter vote builder, and then my volunteers also use Minivan, which is it's called Van normally, and then the one that you use for your phone is so minivan. cute. It's okay. called Minivan. And what do these it, help you do? It, well, it basically gives you a list of all the voters of, and the doors you're knocking and your targets, and you go door to door, and and most of the time it's fairly up to date. And what information does it give you about the people answering? The, the, the it, tells, it tells you their name, their affiliation, their their age, um, 
and uh, that's pretty much what it tells you. So you have just a little bit of information before you knock on that door about who might answer. Absolutely. All right. And does that affect your conversation or how you approach them? Absolutely. How so? Um, I, I think that there's different different conversations that you have. We have we have thirty one thousand unaffiliated voters in El Paso County in my district. Yeah. We have twenty one thousand Democrats and we have thirty four thousand Republicans. This year, people are very very. Um, unhappy with 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 things. Uh, it's a very strange year, as you know, in the election process. And so, to know their party affiliation or their lack of one helps inform the conversation. Absolutely. So, Kevin, you were a founder of the uh, El Dorado Artesian Springs Water Company. Now retired. Your district in Boulder County is uh, more spread out. How have you been reaching to voters? I've been primarily going to public events, uh, the um, Boulder Creek Festival, the Louisville Street Fair, the Boulder County Fair. I spent a whole week at that booth. Uh, so you I'm, have your own booth at those things? <clears throat> the Boulder County Republicans do. I see. And then uh, all the county, all the the candidates' information is there. And um, and what is it like to man a Republican booth at an event in Boulder County? Tell me what that's like. Well, it's, uh, I think of it as being uh, exhausting, but fun. Uh, you get to talk to lots of people. You get to see a lot of happy people at these kinds of events. A lot of happy kids. We have balloons to hand out to the kids, uh, candy to hand out to them. And even though candy might not be that good for them, most of their parents let them have it anyway. I see. So um, the, the kids are attracted with candy. And then what? That Then their parents come their and that's parents, the conversation. And their parents want to talk about issues. First they say, boy, you must be really brave. Uh, I actually wear a, um, a name badge that's sort of large and colorful, red, white, and blue, and has uh, the Republican elephants across the top. Uh So it's uh, not too mysterious what I am when I'm talking to people. And they think you're brave, what, for wearing that in Boulder County? Yes, they Uh do. But uh, it's not really the case. Uh, Almost everyone is nice to me. The worst you ever get is some mother who doesn't want their kid to have a Republican balloon. And that's the worst. And that only happens once per event. That is to say the kid wants the balloon, but the parent doesn't want the GOP logo on the child's balloon. That is okay. correct. However, our person who runs the road show got smart, and he also bought red and blue balloons with no logos on them. And those <laughs> are what we give out to the kids that aren't allowed to have Republican logos. Will you give me an example of a conversation that stands out from your booth? Uh, let's see. A conversation... Some things where they bring up issues that you never quite thought of as being issues. One in Boulder these days is um, there is a large body of uh, experience in the engineering business, for instance, high tech. Uh, but once you get to be in your mid-50s, no one will hire you for that anymore. It's uh, You might call it age discrimination, but officially it probably doesn't qualify. But that's actually uh, kind of a large problem. There's uh, there's all the issues about how to get people in and out of Boulder transportation-wise, but there's already a, a large body of experience that's going unused because we think people are too old to design a rocket engine when they're 55. Interesting. So this is a trend you're hearing. Yes. Yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're checking back in with two Political neophytes, although less so now because they're well into the election. Kevin Sippel and Electra Johnson. Simple's a re- Sippel, pardon me, is a Republican running for Boulder County Commissioner, and Electra Johnson is a Democrat running for Commissioner in El Paso County. And Kevin, what's been your relationship with 
technology, social media, that kind of thing as part of your campaign? Well, I... It's, uh, I was kind of, uh, out of it. I never had a website. I do now. Uh, my website is getting a lot of, uh, likes on Facebook. I also have a Facebook account for the first time ever in my life and a Twitter account. I'm just now learning how to use them, which is a couple of months late, but I am now learning how to use them. And do you like um, them? Do you like them? They're okay. I'm not, I'm not experienced enough to say I like them or dislike them. If I, um, didn't win and fell back into a private life, I might stop using them. Okay. <laughs> so this, this might be for the campaign only. And Electra, what about, um, social media in your campaign? I use it every day, all the time. And I have for years. Um, it's something I'm very comfortable with. It's also it's also a really interesting way to have conversations about things. I post conversations. One of the things that I've enjoyed the most is actually having that civil discourse with a wide variety of people. So I'll post something and people will have a very lengthy civil discourse on, on a topic that I post. Civil? Civil. That's not often the case for social media. Yeah, and it's important. I, and, and when it get, veers out of the civil, I ask people to please um, please, uh, please come back to center and talk about things. Like, for instance, I posted something about what does uh, the, the difference between the roots of the word conservative and conservation. And there were probably 50 comments on mm. there, and they were incredibly interesting. Interesting to me. I think you both have had debates at this point. We have. Yes. Um, Before we go, Kevin Sippel, what have you learned from the debates? What did that experience teach you? Had you debated at all? Like, were you in forensics or anything? No, um, never, except for just one-on-one debates with people over this and that. Uh, Had lots of those sort of things standing around at the public events, where uh, one person after another will come up and talk to you about his or her issues, and. Pretty much, I was. I have been surprised at how civil everyone is, even to a Republican in Boulder County, hmm. and it's uh, it actually makes me feel good about the the voters in general, all of them. What have the debates taught you? They have taught me. It was interesting because I hadn't debated until, um, or the the Republican Party had been debating for quite some time because they had a primary, which was highly contested. There's sort of the establishment Republicans and then the the other Republicans, the outliers. So they'd had some debates, um, and the conversation hadn't really gotten very far. And once I was sitting at the table, it actually shifted the conversation, which gave me a lot of hope because if I, when I win uh, in um, November, I will be the solo Democrat sitting at a table with four other Republicans. And having one voice at the table is very important to start to guide a new vision and a new voice for the future of El Paso County. And you see the debates as... uh as an example of that, a precursor, I suppose. Exactly. And they also, the the preparation for the debates also gave me a lot of um, insight into the issues and whatnot in El Paso County. Okay. Uh, what are you most looking forward to between now and November? Kevin? Uh, a continuation of what I've been doing. I've really been enjoying r- running for this office, enjoying. Um, it's it's what I would have to call fun. It's the most fun thing I've done in years. Huh. I would almost uh, want the the, the um, campaign to go on for a couple more months. Just so <laughs> okay, you might be in the minority on that one. Th- thanks so much, and and very quickly, Electra, what are you looking forward to? 
I'm looking forward to being able to enact real change in El Paso County and really well, that sounds have like a slogan to me. citizen representation. That's important to me. Appreciate so yes. much your time. Electra Johnson is the Democratic candidate for El Paso County Commissioner District 3. Kevin Sippel is the Republican candidate for Boulder County Commissioner. And we're checking in with him from time to time for a newcomer's perspective on the political process. In fairness to the opponents, we have tried to stay away from the issues, and you can find links to the websites of their opponents at cprnews.org. Still to come, Paper Bird is a fixture on the Denver folk music scene. They have a new album and a newish member. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Paper Bird is a darling of the folk music scene for its airy harmonies and what NPR has described as a vintage sound. The Colorado band tries for a different sound on its new self-titled album, Out Friday. Hearing the track Don't Want Half, Paper Bird got some help on this project from John Oates of Hall & Oates. He co-produced. And today we get a preview from guitarist Paul DeHaven, singer Genevieve Patterson, and the newest bandmate, singer Carly Akins. Welcome to the three of you. Thanks for having us. Hi. Howdy. So Carly, you joined the band about two years ago after founding member Esme Patterson left to focus on her solo career. Paper Bird had been around for about a decade at that point. What has it been like to jump in and find your footing with people who've been making music together for so long? It's actually been pretty relatively easy. <laughs> I was quite surprised, actually. Um, were, you, were you dreading it to some extent? No, not at all. I mean, I, I could sense a vibe with these people that they were very easygoing, adaptable people. And I kind of was privy to their history and, and knew that they'd been through a lot together and a lot of changes line up all, all of those things and grown up together so yeah that's a bit intimidating because um they're such a tight unit and they've grown up together but it, it felt like i was a member of the family right away well i think you found your footing i mean your vocals on this are really really strong really powerful thank you yeah talk to me about your voice um whether it has changed over the years, whether there was a moment you felt that you'd found it? Um, well, I started in music theater, so that was my training originally, and, and choir, of course, as, as a little kid. Um, and then my brother started playing drums in rock bands, and I wanted to hang out with him. So I would kind of inch my way in and, and sing harmonies and stuff with, with the guys, and then eventually uh, was invited into a fold into a rock band with my brother. And because the guitars were so loud, I, I had to kind of force myself to sing over them. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this growly kind of, you know, more powerful sound started to, to come out. And so that's kind of how I, I found this new voice. And so, yeah, I've definitely entertained that further as I've grown up. Paul, according to the band's website, you first heard Carly sing in 2012 during a concert at Willie Nelson's Ranch. Is that right? 
It's pretty much true. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you know she'd be a good fit? Uh, well, you know, we just started, uh, we just had made a good friendship uh, right away when we, um, after we met and we kept in touch. She lives in Toronto. So we had some mutual friends in Colorado and we uh, wrote some songs together, not thinking about Paper Bird at all, just, just as musicians collaborate. And then uh, when it came time to find a new singer, it was kind of the first thing on our mind just because we'd already established a rapport. And, uh, you know, we, I loved the, her voice. We all did. And we knew her personality would fit in well. That, that would be easy uh, and comfortable and, and really, uh, you know, what she does brings a power to the project that we all wanted to embrace. And we all wanted to let that bring that into what we were doing. Genevieve, uh, you bring also some lovely vocals to this new record. And I... The more I interview bands, especially larger bands, the more I hear about how important it is to have good communication and all of the stuff of like really good marriages in a way. How would you describe, I don't know, the, the communication style of Paper Bird, especially with, you know, newer members now? Yeah, that's the that's the key. That's the Rosetta Stone always is us figuring out how to talk about each other or talk about each other. Uh, talk to each other. <laughs> Behind each other's backs. Is that a Freudian slip? But we are all pretty sensitive people. We do a good job of finding ways to incorporate everyone's ideas, but it's also a it's just a brutal business. So mm. you have to constantly evolve. So in a lot of ways, we need to be more of a support team for each other because as much as we're all working on things together and we all have different ideas and we're all celebrating each other's differences, at the end of the day, we're all working together to put something forward. And sometimes it feels like you're just taking something fragile and throwing it into this howling gale of the social media and the world of music and all mm. those things. So it's like paper bird against the world. Sometimes. So it's even when, you know, even when we don't always agree on everything, we know we always have each other and that makes up for a lot in my book. And, um, it's such a lovely way to see it mm -hmm. um, that you are each other's allies in, as you said, what can be a pretty brutal business. Mm -hmm. But let's get back to the, the sensitivity in the music, mm -hmm. shall we? Um, this album has much more of a, of a rock feel, I think, than previous paper bird releases. And one thing that stands out are the instrumental changes, I think. I know it seems like we all got a limit. Keep on. I want to talk about what I don't hear. Banjo. <laughs> I don't hear stand-up bass. Maybe it's there. It sounds a lot more electric. Uh, why make the change, Paul? Uh, it was just what we wanted to do. It was the direction that we wanted to head. We wanted to, we wanted to play louder so Carly could sing louder. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> uh, we'd been experimenting with it. And uh, we, all, we also wanted to make our band 
a little bit smaller. We had seven pieces before that, and when Macon left to go do Clouds and Mountains, his other project, um, he was the upright bass player. So we wanted Caleb to, or when Caleb decided to come in and switch from banjo to uh, electric bass, it was just simplified everything. It gave us, it gave more room for the vocals. I think, even though everything was louder, it just gave everybody a voice. Caleb Samuel, you're speaking. I am. You are. And so this is about adapting, in part, to a new member. Let's talk more with Paper Bird after a break. The Denver Band joins us in studio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined by several of the members of the Denver band Paper Bird. They have a new self-titled album. It's out Friday. We're getting a preview. Joining me, uh, Carly Akins, Paul DeHaven, and Genevieve Patterson. So I want to play the song Parade because I think this is a nice showcase, Carly, of your vocals from this new album. This is the final verse in the song, and obviously lots of intensity in your voice. I, I think it's actually kind of meatloafian. <laughs> you know, I can picture you on the edge of a canyon being windblown. What is this song about? Um, well, at the time, I wrote it about a relationship that was challenging. I was in a relationship with someone who was also a musician, and we were living long distance, and that came with its challenges. Now, that relationship is over, and it's funny you know, singing the song now, how it's almost like was a prophecy for, you know, it takes on new meaning and it's kind of, it's kind of like a prophecy to what was, what was going to happen. But in that relationship, mm-hmm. so it's, I think that happens a lot with songs where you, you know, you write something with, with the intention of it meaning something for the time that you're writing it in and then it takes on new meaning, mm. which is kind of a, a strange thing that a cosmic thing maybe <laughs> that happens is it dangerous for musicians to date other musicians i think so yes. <laughs> okay <laughs> have you put something of a ban yeah. on that going it'd be forward? nice to meet like a doctor or something or you know i don't know i've always dated musicians and it's 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 you know you have this this common thread between each you the two of you but yeah i mean the challenge in that relationship was one one person was experiencing a higher rate of success you know and the other was i don't know it came with a lot of <laughs> challenges but being on the road a lot is the number one thing that might cause troubles not to turn colorado matters into a dating service but if, <laughs> if there's a doctor listening you're saying you know, <laughs> i think i'm just gonna take it easy for now <laughs> so the song we heard parade uh i understand was the first song that carly brought to the band genevieve and at that point you already knew she could sing Mm-hmm. What about her songwriting got you excited? It was crazy. We have a really unique uh, set of 
uh, things that we do in the band. And so it was just really amazing to hear the song and I could just already hear instantly what I wanted to do or just that Carly um, is more like a percussionist and she can play piano and guitar, but she doesn't do that a lot. So a lot of times when she writes, she writes just by recording a bunch of vocal layers. So it was just... With the voice as instrument. Yeah. with the <gasps> create. So a lot of times when she would bring a song, she would have it all demoed and she would have all these vocal parts in there already. And it just was amazing to uh, hear, hear all these things that just seemed prepackaged for our band and just be like oh yeah no that'll that'll work great and we'll just get in there and and make it happen and i just i deeply connect with the songs that she writes and i i feel like they're just so powerful and it's a really amazing thing to get to be a part of playing those songs because i do think they're coming from such a real place and it's just been really incredible to collaborate in that way have you had to sing differently on this album genevieve yeah i think that we all got to sing differently Mm. i think that uh in a way it's singing is so subconscious sometimes it's really hard to be very very intentional even when you think you are but i listen back and even in the ways that i thought i was finding this new voice and uh we all kind of grew up a little and matured in a way on this record But I can also definitely hear that there's so much of the way Carly sings and hear how that's changed Sarah and I's voices just from blending to her on her songs. Now there's a different openness and depth and uh, richness to it that wasn't there before. And it's, you know, totally by accident. This is Sarah Anderson, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in in Paper Bird. Uh, so John Oates of the famous Hall & Oates co-produced this album. Paul, how did that come to be, briefly? Uh, well, we have uh, we were looking for partners to co-write with on this record because we'd never done that before. We wanted to get some other uh, perspectives on songwriting. And uh, we reached out to a few people and John Oates you know, answered the call and he came up to our ranch in Evergreen and spent the day with us, spent a couple days with us, and he was just so... Uh, overjoyed to be working with us and of course we felt the same way yeah so it was a mutual experience and then he you know um it went well we had a a good collaborative rapport and he invited us to come to one of his favorite studios in nashville and produce our record how was that it was amazing Mm -hmm. yeah every song we, we fell into a really nice rhythm where each song would be uh, we'd have we had the idea for the song, and then he would come in, and we'd work on the changes, make work on the the chord structure, work on some of the arrangements of the song, and then we would we'd uh, lay down the track and and see how it worked. And if it worked great, well, then that was the song. Well, why don't we hear one more track from the new album? This is to the light. Okay. Bright at the end of the tunnel, in a street lamp in the night. Come home to me. Close your tight. What I love about that track is it has a gospel, almost spiritual quality to it. Paperbird, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank Thanks for you. having us. We heard from Paul DeHaven, Genevieve Patterson, and Carly Akins of the Colorado band Paper Bird. Their new self-titled album is out Friday. You can also catch the band at Twist and Shout Record Store in Denver Thursday night. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.